this is my last Sunday. And uh, uh, I, I laughingly, a couple of you have said, this is your last Sunday. I said, yeah, I had an extended job interview and they've decided to keep looking kind of thing. You know, I, I'm moving on. Okay, thank you. I've been promoted to congregant. So anytime I come back now, I'll get to sit in the bench and just, you know, be part of the congregation. And so it's a bit of a promotion. I put a card out and I, I don't do this all the time. That's uh, where I work, okay? That's what I do. And there's some information there. And if you ever want to talk to me about that, my name's on there, my number's on there. If it could be helpful to you, to your family, family members or people you know. It's a housing society that's in Vancouver. It's Christian, but not obligatory. It's, it's a lot like the Salvation Army. We help people with housing regardless of their faith, regardless of their ethnicity. You don't have to be a Christian to live in our, uh, our, our campus. You don't have to become a Christian to live in our campus. But we are Christian. We're part of the Canadian Baptist. So when people come to live with us, it's really just come be part of us body, soul, and spirit, and we'll respect you as you respect us. So it may be helpful to you, as they say, and it's got independent living as well as assisted living, and those terms may be really helpful to you. I'll leave that, that with you, okay? Um, what I want to also just at the beginning end is I want to say thank you to you for letting me preach here for the last, what, 8, 12 Sundays that I've been part of your congregation. It has been written, I enjoy preaching. I don't know if you sense that or not. I like preaching. Yeah. And you've let me preach, so like, how good is that kind of thing? But it's really deeper than my enjoyment. I, I think the preaching is not only enjoyable, it's valuable, even essential to the congregation's wellness. A good congregation requires good preaching regularly. And I remember... In my own journey, sensing God's call to preaching, my first sermon I preached when I was 18 years old, and it was in a little church in northern Ontario, maybe 40 people, and the pastor at that time asked me if I would preach on Sunday morning, September 12th. And I remember, because you're full of vinegar and you don't know any better, you say, absolutely, I'd love to. Kind of thing. So I got up and preached my first sermon when I was 18. And the reason I remember is 18 because the sermon was 18 minutes long. Okay? And I went from Genesis to Revelation. I covered it all. I mean, I, I had one shot. I was going to get her done kind of thing. But I still think backwards to that congregation that let me and that pastor who allowed me. And I, I want to say that that's how we, we raise up people. We, we find the Timothys. We find the gifted people. And we give them a shot. And it may not be great, but it's good. And it's good for you and it's good for them. And nobody died and went to hell because of the sermon I preached. I promise you that kind of thing. God is bigger than one bad sermon kind of thing. But having said that, it was the first step in what uh, 45 years later I, I still do. I love to preach and I love the opportunity to, to be able to preach. And, and part of what guides me and, and just really sustains me is um, the word, this book, uh, through the prophet Isaiah, tells us that my word shall not return unto me void, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. And so I have been preaching for 45 years. And yes, I worry about the day-to-day -day outcomes, but I also know nothing that is said in the proclamation of God's truth goes to void. And it's amazing how it produces fruit, if not here, later, long after. And the things that we live, we often say, I learned it when I was eight years old. Or I remember our pastor used to say this. Or our youth pastor used to say this. And all of a sudden, 30, 40, 50 years later, we're remembering things that, that, that didn't go to void, did they? No, they didn't. So 
So today, I want to take the time we have to preach, and I want to talk to you about faith in Jesus and faith in your friends and what that means to us. And so if you have your Bibles, the passage we're going to look at is Mark chapter 2, the first 12 verses. And so we're looking at Mark chapter 2, and we're going to talk about faith, faith in Jesus and in our friends and what that means to us. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there. I've got mine, and I'm going to invite you out of respect for the Word of God. Would you stand with me? And if you don't have your Bibles, open both ears. We're going to hear the Word of God read to us Mark chapter 2. Shall we stand together? Mark writes, A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralyzed man, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, Take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And so he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, We have never seen anything like this. Amen. May God's word be on it. You may be seated. There's a couple of words just setting us up. I want to talk about faith in Jesus and faith in our friends and what it means to us. But before I go into the actual passage, I just want to elucidate a couple of things. I want to use faith in a very specific way. In the Bible, faith is used, and it's often connected with belief. And they overlap, but there's some distinctiveness to each of them. In the Bible, it uses the word to believe, and it refers to that you believe, and what you believe in. For instance, in James it says, the demons believe in God. Oh, to believe is a reference to that you believe, and what you believe in. And the truth is, it's kind of a human experience. I think most, most of the created human order believes. They're believers in something. I get it there are some that would claim they don't. They're called nihilists or materialists. Their worldview is you eat, drink, be merry because you die. And when you die, you go to dust. And there are people that hold to that worldview. And, and, and frankly, I think it's indefensible and not consistent. And the psalmist talks about it, and I don't mean to be pejorative, the psalmist says, the fool has said in their heart, there is no God. And so I, I don't want to say this to nihilists or materialists, you're a fool. But the truth is, it's a very foolish worldview to have. But there are some who hold to that and say, you know what, we're all just dust, we're going to go back to dust, don't worry about it. And I would say, well, if you're really consistent with that, you need to be a selfish pig. Because you need to get for all you can get. Because if that's all there is, the winner who dies with the most, the winner is the one who dies with the most toys. And they, well, that's ridiculous. That's really an insane. Well, so, but if you want to be a consistent materialist or nihilist, say there's nothing, 
then go for it. Now, I, I, I'm being a little bit humorous there, saying very few people would go that way. But there are some. Most everybody in the world believes in something. And that's a human thing. And, and it's not unique to us as Christians. World religions exist because people believe in something. Don't dismantle that. Don't disparage that. The human condition is to believe. And even people here in Western civilization, even though they may not identify with Christianity, still believe in something. Uh, I used to be a little bit of a, well, a bit of a scamp. I, I would often be eating in a restaurant, and I would say to the server, uh, hey, hey, can I ask you a question? And usually the server would say, sure, what's up? And I'd say, I'm a pastor. Oh, cool. Kind of, I don't know whether they knew what it meant or not. And I said, I'm doing a little research. And they would say back to me, sure. I said, would you consider yourself spiritual? And uh, I'm telling you, nine times out of 10, 99 times out of 100, that person would say, yeah, heck yeah. And I said, well, that's great. I'm not shocked. I'm getting that feedback a lot. I said, do you, can, do you ever go to church? Oh, no, I don't do that. I'm spiritual. <laughs> and I said, do you have any memories of church? It's just, and you'd be surprised how few do nowadays, especially servers which tend to be, you know, under 30. That whole generation has grown up without any real connection. And there may be some, well, my grandmother used to go to a Baptist church. And I remember one time she made me go to something in the summer for kids. And that's kind of, that's all. I, oh, my friend got married in the Catholic church about three years ago, too. That was kind of weird, but it was cool kind of thing. You know. And you're dealing with people who, but who would say, oh, no, I'm spiritual. And I, I get that. They believe in something. And then I would say, so where are you getting your information for your spiritual? And it was really an inquiry on my part and curious. It wasn't, uh, you know, indoctrination or interrogation. And it was just quite a pleasant. And they would say, well, movies, my friends. Sometimes we get together, we have some really intense discussion. So I'm just figuring it out, and I don't lock into anything. But yeah, I believe in something. Don't get me wrong. And I would say it's part of the human condition. Everybody believes in something. The challenge to move from belief, and I'm going to use it very specifically here, from belief to faith. Uh, I'm a believer. Now, and I'm a believer, and we're in a church. I'm a believer in, this is me, and I'm not pounding them. I'm just saying, I'm a believer in the God of the Bible, the Jesus of Calvary, the Holy Spirit, the forgiveness of sins, the life everlasting. That's what I believe in. And there's a lot of people who believe in it, but there's a step where you move from believing into act of faith. And I'm not, I'm not trying to put them in contrast or conflict. I'm just saying sometimes you move from belief into faith, and sometimes you leak your faith back into belief. And I don't think there's anything that's going to ever stop you from believing something. Uh, pain, suffering, disappointment may cause you to wobble. But when you've deeply experienced some belief, you're probably going to hang on to it. And you may be 88 years of age and angry at everything that has happened to you. But deep in your heart, I'm going to bet you, you still have something down there you believe in. You can't get rid of it. Um, I often meet young adults that have grown up in the church. And I'm, I'm, I try not to be grandpa figure-ish, and I'm, I'm sensitive to that. I try to be as open and receptive. Again. So I'll often hear about, so tell me about that. And they'll talk to me about growing up in the church and abandoning it and throwing it overboard. But they can't, they can't get rid of it. <laughs> 
And I, I'm laughing because inside I'm smiling when they tell us. I, I often think one of the cosmic jokes that God plays when we're young and we grew up in a church and our parents take us to church is that um, whether it's our parents or Jesus puts the furniture of heaven in our souls and we keep banging into it. And we try and have a garage sale to get rid of it, but we just can't get rid of all of it. Like, oh, sick. And we're still angry at it. Uh, and, and often I meet people that at some stage in their life are trying hard to you know, reject their beliefs and get rid of it all. And I say, good luck. You know, it's tough. There's some things deep inside you that are integrated into your spirit. You're going to have a hard time totally sanitizing them out. <laughs> but I want to talk about not just belief. I want to talk about faith. And here's how I want to illustrate it. Faith is not belief that or what. It's belief in who and trust with. So believing is good. But the Bible calls us to not just believe, it actually calls us to want to lean on, lean into, trust Jesus for, and take action in that direction. That's, that's faith, where we're trusting Jesus for, not just believing that. And I'll give you an example, um, just from a human experience. Say you have a teenager, and he or she's on the school basketball team, and there's a basketball practice, and they said, Hey, Mom, can I get a ride home after basketball practice tonight? And you say, yeah, sure, no problem. I work till 5. I could probably be at the front of the school at 5.15 to pick you up. Is that okay? And he looks at you and says, 5, yeah, uh, practice over at 4.30, but if you're coming at 5 or 5.15, I'll be there kind of thing. Or, yeah, I'll pay attention kind of thing. So you have some knowledge. You have some belief that he's heard what you've talked about. He has some knowledge or what you talked about. You have some belief... But where it really gets real is when at, say you're coming at 5 for sake of the discussion. At 4.55, he looks at his watch, he checks his phone, he turns to the way and says, hey, I got to go, my mom's coming at 5 o'clock. And he makes his way out to the curb because he knows his mom is coming at 5 o'clock. That's faith. It has an action component. It trusts. It takes it real. It doesn't just hold it in the back of the head. And so in our study today, I'm going to make that, I'm going to talk about faith in Jesus Faith in our friends and what that means to us. And so we're going to pick it up and there's about, oh, I guess I'm going to say four big ideas in the passage today. Let's, let's work our way through it, okay? Um, the first one I want you to see is that there is an attractiveness to Jesus. There's an attractiveness to Jesus. Uh, we pick it up in verse 1 that a few days later, Jesus comes home, his hometown. He's from Capernaum. I'm going to guess it may have been a village of 300, 500 people. We're not talking thousands of people. We're talking a relatively compact place that people lived. Some of you come from small towns. I'll talk about it in a few minutes. And when he, when he comes home, they gather in large numbers to the point there's no room left, not even outside the door. And we'll talk about what he does. But they come to this home because Jesus is home. And the word gets out in the street, hey, Jesus is back. And it's not a written culture with Facebook, you know, posted on Instagram. It's an oral culture. People talk. Uh, I come from a small town of about 3,000 people. 
And that was the largest town within 100 miles. So we were considered to be. But even in our town of 3,000 people, everybody knew everybody. We really did. You knew who they were, where they lived. You didn't know everything about them. But you didn't wait for the weekly newspaper to come out. The rumor mill was really strong. And often things got communicated. We were such a small town that although we all knew where everybody lived, nobody knew for sure what your house number was. Like, maybe you can relate to this. Yeah, they live on... They live on Johnson Street. Okay, which one? Uh, what number? I don't know. It's the blue house next to the gray house. Oh, yeah, with the green truck in front. Yeah, oh, I got it kind of thing. That was the way we lived our lives. Nobody in a small town needed details. We just communicated, and we figured things out. But every once in a while in a small town, people would get things only half right, and that's where gossip comes in. Uh, a, a gossip piece is usually some truth, and it's only half true. And the trouble is you can't figure out what's half right and what's half wrong. And it's so delightful when you see it go through the system. There was a particular person in our town, and she had a reputation for being a real gossiper. She liked to be in on everything. She liked to know what was going on, who was doing what, what happened there. And uh, she had a real reputation for being a gossiper. People didn't like it because she was just nosy. And so one time, one of the old guys, and I grew up in a, a community that had a legion. I don't know if you know what that is. It's just a beer hall. Kind of thing. And, and it's, don't judge it, it is what it is. And he decided one night that he was going to fix the gossip lady. And what he did was, every Friday night for the next six weeks at midnight, Friday at midnight, he would go park his green truck in her driveway. And he'd walk home, because it's not a big town. And in the morning at six o'clock, he'd come back and pick up his truck and drive home. <laughs> <laughs> and in the space of six weeks, boy, could you tell what people were talking about? Everybody knew... What was going on? Really? You know, oh yeah, I saw his truck parked there again on Friday night. Really? That's six weeks in a row he's been there. Oh, she was devastated. <laughs> in a small town, you don't need a media campaign to get the word out. You don't need Facebook. You don't need Instagram. People talk. And in this small town, something, uh, Jesus shows up. And the people here, these come home. And what do they do? They gather around. They come to the house he's in. And the house he's in is, is not as big as this room. I would be shocked if it had held 40, 50 people. I don't know for a fact. I think it might have been able to squeeze more than 20. But we're not talking a amphitheater. So we're talking gunnel to gunnel, large living room, people in the kitchen, people on the outside here. There's no place or space for more people. There's something about Jesus that brought people together. And as we read the text, look at the end of verse 2. What is it he does? And it says, they come and he preaches the word to them. People get attracted to things in life. Sometimes they get attracted to light or to beauty. Sometimes they get attracted to sound or competence. So for instance, if, if you told me that I had tickets to see the Canucks this afternoon. I'd go. I like to see competence. I'm attracted to that. If you told me that so-and-so who is a beautiful person is going to be at this place and they want 40 people to come and look, I might be attracted to that. There's something about beauty and sound and light and noise. Let's not be dishonest with ourselves. We are attracted to certain things. But what attracted people to Jesus wasn't his six-foot-six hard rock abs. It wasn't even his quaffered hair. What they came together to hear was, look at the end of verse 3, as I said, he preaches the word to them. 
he talked. And he talked as one having authority. He made sense. And it wasn't wiffle waffle. It wasn't even me. It was just as, oh my goodness. He was authentic. He was compassionate. He was corrective in a kindly way. He was directive in a helpful way. That when Jesus talked, people didn't say, oh, be quiet, babbler. Really, keep going. And often he'd be invited to speak and speak and speak. There was something about this Jesus that was attractive. And I want to pull on that thread and say that it was his preaching. And I'm using the word specifically. It's a biblical word. People say, I don't like preachers. Well, it's a New Testament word. It just means somebody who talks with intentionality about God. Somebody who believes in what they're talking about to the point they want to help people. And I want to say to you, we still need preachers amongst us who in this spirit are saying, here's some helpful stuff. Here's some redirective stuff. This is intended not to hurt you, to harm you, to harass you. This is designed to help you. And so when the preacher gets up to preach, we as a healthy spiritual diet say, I need good preaching. I'm not going to be selfish here. I'm not going to be silly. I love everything, but give me some good preaching. We don't want mediocrity. We want to hear the word of the Lord. And that's why we gather together for a preacher. And it's not about personality. It's about the proclamation. And so for those in the room and others in the room, including myself, you would self-identify as preachers. You need to work hard at your preaching and your teaching. You need to fight for it. You need to fight for time and space to prepare it. It's too valuable to leave to a secondary space. Um, over the years I, I pastored, I used to fight for it. I, I, would, I would reserve the mornings from 8 till noon to prepare five days a week. And you could not get an appointment with me. You couldn't schedule a meeting with me. We didn't have committee work. We didn't have drop-in stuff because it was so important that I do that work. And in the afternoons, staff meeting, individual meetings, counseling sessions, evenings, that kind of thing, totally at everybody else's. But it's too important to leave this till late Friday afternoon. We need to discipline ourselves because this is the stuff, as I say, that, that brings the strength of the people of God. And so, um, your preacher coming to you, uh, I don't know his pattern, but you can help him. And when he tells you his pattern, you need to respect the say, because we know you're getting ready to bring what God has for us. Yes. So, I'm going to summarize here. Jesus was very attractive. There's something that drew people to him. It was about his preaching, but it wasn't just peripheral or timid. It was sustainable. People kept showing up. What's to speak to us? And I want to just ring the chimes here one last bit. Is we often think, yeah, what do we do to get people to show up? And we sometimes miss the point. We think, how do we get people to like our church? And how do we get people to come to our programs? And what do we do to get our ministries so they would be impactful? And I understand that, but don't miss the point that ultimately all of these things are are part of, intended to help people encounter Jesus. And it's not about the preacher, it's about the Jesus piece. And and I sometimes worry that our ministries can be so successful. I remember doing some consulting with a particular youth ministry. And they were so good at attracting people to that ministry that Jesus got left out. 
It was like literally the most fun thing you could do on a Friday night. And they had tons of people and tons of kids coming out. But there was a difficulty. How do we move them from just showing up and eating pizza and enjoying the, the uh, into And I said, that's exactly it. You're so stinking good at running your program that Jesus is getting lost. So how do we keep Jesus center? And, and I'm going to give you something here. I say if, if, if people come to our church, and we really do, we run all these things. Um, if I were giving you, make sure they get a copy of the New Testament and say, here, read the Gospel of Mark. Let them encounter Jesus. Don't try and sidestep them in. Let them encounter the Jesus, because he's very attractive. and We don't need to be so beautiful that people love us. We need to make sure Jesus gets centered. There's a second thing in this passage, and I call it faith and friends. Look, let's pick up in verse 3, shall we? It says that it's so crowded that some men come bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by the four of them. You can kind of imagine this, whether it's a, whether it's a stretcher, whether it's a, um, an awning with ropes in the corners, whether it's a, a duffel. We're, we're not told, but they're carrying him. And since they can't get him into Jesus because of the crowd, I mean, it's just people deep and they can't squeeze. It's like trying to get on the SkyTrain at 5 o'clock and there's 20 people in front of you. You're like, this ain't going to happen. Okay, kind of. Being ingenuous, they made an opening in the roof above. Now, can you imagine if we're sitting or standing here, sitting here, and you're scraping noises on the roof? And, and most of us would be a little nervous, and the deacons would be upset. Uh, and the dust starts falling down, and they're scraping back. And I know that probably the construction wasn't the same kind of construction we have. I get that, but it's still the same principle. All of a sudden, there's daylight popping through. And I'm, 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 I'm believing everybody looks up, what the? And all of a sudden, you see this thing being lowered down. And right there in front of Jesus on a mat... Whether that mat is a mattress, whether it's a stretcher, we're not told. But we're all looking like, and there's four faces peering down kind of thing. You're like, uh. and it's a small town. Everybody knows everybody in a small town. And they all have opinions about what's happening, right? Some of it's true, some of it's not true, some of the half-truth kind of thing. And they're all formulating those opinions quickly. And the tom-toms are beating, did you hear what happened? Things like that. And everybody has an opinion about it kind of thing. And in the middle of it all, this man lies there. He's paralyzed. He can't move. He can't move. And he's struggling. And Jesus looks at him, and what I find really, and there's so much in this passage, but what I want to just capture for you is, look at verse 5. When Jesus saw their faith, one, two, three, four, five, not his faith, he looked there, and we know from reading Scripture he understands our heart. So it's not like he's guessing it. He gets it. This guy believes that Jesus can do something for him. He has faith in him. i got to get to see Jesus. But in order for it to happen, the guy turns to his friend and says, Can you help me? And they're sharing his faith that Jesus could do something about it. And together the faith in him, because he's their friend, his faith in them, collectively... Jesus says, whoa, son of man, your sins are forgiven. And what I'm getting at today is, do we have people that in our faith journey, when we need help to trust Jesus, we can call on them to help us trust Jesus? Because as much as faith in Jesus is a personal thing, it can at times 
require the assistance of people that care deeply for the same things you do and about you? Who do you call on when you need help? And I get it, we call upon the Lord, but sometimes our faith in Jesus is so battered by the situation. Lord, we need people to believe with us and have faith with us. There, there, uh, Lee Iacocca was the, the, the CEO, president of Chrysler Corporation, and he, he's quoted as saying that if you die, if when you die you have four or five good friends, you've had a very good life. And I want to say to you today, who are the four or five people that when you think about it, these are your friends? And they may live in the Tri-Cities, they may not, because you made friendships with them 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. And you could pick up the phone this afternoon and say, hey, it's me, hey, what's happening? It's like they're still there. You've had a lifelong friendship. And you know that were you to seriously require them to, they would drop everything to come and help you. That's a friend. And we all need people like that in our lives because there are times in our lives when we are paralyzed. Our faith in Jesus is actually leaking badly. And it's not that we're not believing. We're not giving up on that, but I won't lie to you, I'm struggling. And so your faith is you you call them and they come for you, they help you too. And the flip side is there are people that count you as their friend. You think, really? Really? Yeah, they count on you in times of trouble. And when they call you up, they're not just trying to jones you or take advantage of you. (laughs) I need some help. What do you need? I can do that. And in our early years, it's interesting in the development of of life, um, a sidebar, many of our deep, rich values are formed between 5 and 15. And I, I smiled when Nathan talked about his journey growing up and home. Many of the things that he lives by today, his parents put into his life or life put into him, and so he's still living with them. And between 15 and 25, we often make connections, friendships, relationships that stay with us. People we went to university with, we still connect with. Or people in our early 20s that we started the same career path with, we spent time with. And so I wouldn't be surprised if some of you say today, yeah, I, I've been a friend with this person since we, well, we, we met in university on the second day of classes. Oh, really? You maybe married somebody that in those times of life you pulled your lives together. And even as I look around at church, there's people here that say, yeah, I've been going to this church for 30 years. Fred, you started the week after us, you know, and your your partners kind of thing because you've been trucking together. And I look at young couples uh, raising children together. Chances are you come to this church and one of the reasons you might stick is not just because there's a good children's program, it's because there's people here that you're sharing life with. You're doing life. And these are people that you know you can call on them. And it's not your grandfather, it's your colleague, your friends. Um, And it's interesting, um, what's what's the connecting point here is, not just they are friends, but when his faith needed help, he could count on them. I'm going to tell you, I I don't like to use provocative personal stories, but I I had one two weeks ago, and and I apologize if it seems melodramatic, but it sure fits. Um, Two weeks ago, Tuesday, so what, 12 days ago, it's coming up 14 days, uh, I have a condition that the corneas in my eyes are deteriorating. They can't be fixed with lenses, they can't be fixed with drops. And so about two years ago, the doctor said to me, we're going to have to do cornea transplants. I said, what does that mean? He says, well, it's the cadaver and it's the get in the right place and it's usually a good match. It's pretty easy tissue to turn over. Should be no problem. So in 
the summer of 18, 2018, I had my first cornea transplant done. And it was amazing. It was a 45-minute procedure in the hospital. You're wide awake. You're frozen up. There's scalpels in your eye. There's all kinds of stuff. But it was fantastic. I won't lie to you. It was almost pleasant. I came out of there, and about six days, eight days later, my eyesight came back. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. I can't believe how good I see out of this eye. So you get in line for tissue transplant. And you can't just snap your fingers. You get in line. And uh, at the beginning of February would have been maybe late January, they phoned up and said, we have tissue available on Tuesday. We know it's short notice. Would you be able to come in for this? And so I went in on that Tuesday, and they put me in, and I was anticipating another rock and roll ride. I thought, oh, man, this would be so fantastic. It's going to be 45 minutes. I'm going to be able, I won't be able to see for a couple of days, but the pain isn't real bad. And a week from now, I'll be like, laser eyes kind of thing. And they get into the procedure, and from the beginning, it was way rougher than the first one. They scrape out your old cornea. <laughs> they put a fresh one in. And into the procedure, I'm telling you, it's not working. I'm wide awake, but it feels wrong. And three hours later, I hear the doctor and say, well, I'm really sorry, Jamie, but it didn't work today. We're going to close you up and come into my office tonight at 6. Because you're not immobilized. You're just deeply, deeply and he says, we'll discuss your options. And I said, am I blind? He says, yeah, you're blind in your left eye. And I'm, and now, obviously in the midst of distress, our emotions kick up. Our imaginations run wild. And I came out from the operating surgical room, went into the recovery area, and I broke down. I began to cry, sobbing. And the nurse came by and said, are you in a lot of pain? And I said, no, no pain at all. So what's wrong? He says, I'm, I'm disappointed. I'm devastated. I'm blind. And she looked at me, and when we the surgeon came back to me and did her best to do good nurse work, and I want to respect the system, but it couldn't change the fact that deep in my spirit, I'm having a crisis. I came out, and I phoned somebody, and I get a little upset here, emotional here, and I phoned them and said, I'm in trouble. And they said, what's up? I said, uh, the surgery didn't work. I'm blind. And they said, oh, my goodness. And they began to pray. They didn't invite me to pray. They didn't say, could I pray for you? They began to pray because I knew this person shared my life with faith. And I want to say to you, we all need two, three, four people. And I know there's hundreds of people that call Calvary home, but who are the people you can call them up and say, I'm in trouble? And they say, let me pray. That's what's going on in this story. This man had friends, and they helped him. But he had faith in them, and together they shared. Finish the story, because people always get nervous. Um, I went in at 6 o'clock that night, and the doctor says, we're just going to redo it again, or there may be a second procedure. Let me give you a couple of days to let your body calm down, because you are rather inflamed. And uh, 36 hours later, last Thursday, they said, we have another two-hour window coming up in the, in the, uh, the, the surgical theater. Can you be in today at 2 o'clock? And I said, only if you put me out. <laughs> I want 20, I want complete sedation. None of that just local anesthetic stuff. That's way too upsetting. So they, they put me under, and I find out afterwards, again, in 30 minutes, they brought fresh tissue in the better path, better match and better situation. Boom, where you go. And, you know, I'm, I'm so much on the road to recovery today. I'm not wearing a patch. I can, I can see half of you. I can see the good people today. I can't see the bad people with this eye. So, so those that I can see count of good things. But, but I tell you that, when we get into trouble, who do we call on? These are the friends that will do what they can to help us. 
We have faith in our friends. There's, there's a third thing in this story. Uh, we pick it up in verse 6. There are opponents of Jesus. Um, we pick it up in verse 6. Now, some teachers of the law, if you're a person that underlines, he describes, he doesn't just say some people, the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves. And, and again, I talk about small town. Jesus makes the world a very small town. <laughs> he knows everything. He doesn't just need the small town. Like small town, everybody knows everything. Jesus knows everything in the world. He knows what you're thinking. He doesn't need to have a small town. He knows what they're thinking. And he says, <laughs> he, 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 and why, does it, why do you talk like that? Why are you saying that in your, well, I'm not saying that. You are. Well, I didn't say that. In your heart, you did. <sighs> okay, maybe I did. But who can forgive sins? Are you telling us you're God? Are you trying to take the place? Of, are you? And they become disruptive and combative. And he challenges them. Why are you thinking these things? And then he asks them a question, what's easier? And it's kind of a rabbinic style. So should I say the easy thing because the hard thing is too hard to say? Or should I say the hard thing because the easy thing is he? I could say your sins are forgiven and you couldn't prove it either way. But if I say take up your mat and walk, ooh, that's actually the harder thing to say. I could say that too. I'm going to show you this so you know the Son of Man has authority on earth. And I'm going to run something by you. I think these teachers of the law were jealous. Somebody was overstepping their power. They might have been insecure, somebody greater than them in the room. But they were feeling threatened by Jesus' presence and by his actions towards this man. They didn't like it. Who's, who's this Jesus to be overruling, overwhelming us? Doesn't he know who we are? Does he realize what people are going to think about him and then about us? We're going to lose out. It's a lose situation. And I want to suggest to you that, that they were worried they were going to lose their authority, their power, their identity. And it might have been fear, it might have been doubt, but I think it was a lot of pride. And I get it. Today, when Jesus comes into people's lives as Jesus... He presents himself, and many people say, well, I'd love to have Jesus on my terms. If it helps me to be a better me, I'm in. Uh, I don't want to give up my identity, my freedom, my autonomy to anyone. I am all, uh, it's tough to be a believer in the Jesus of the Bible if that's your approach. Jesus is here, I'm here. It goes the other way. Jesus is here, I'm here. And uh, he, he, he sets the terms, and he's loving and leading and guiding, but he is the Lord. And that's what I believe the Bible teaches us. And so the real fight often in situation is for control and who will rule in the situation. And it's not just in our hearts with Jesus. I've seen it in public context, church context. People say, oh, we had a real, it was really a power struggle. Who's going to be in charge or who's going to rule over? And in our personal Christian lives, you're much better off giving in sooner rather than fighting and overruling. Um, let me pick up, though, and I, oh my goodness. Uh, number four, what good is faith in Jesus? There's two things in verse 10 through 12 I want to point out to them. Look at the text here. Uh, there's this struggle going on. So he turns to the person on the floor. I want you to know the son of man. So he says to that, verse 11, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He gets up, took his mat, and walked out. Uh, he'd already told him his sins are forgiven, but now he's given them. And I want to suggest to you that the trusting in Jesus is good for the here and the hereafter. It's good for the here and now, and it's for the hereever. Um, if you believe in Jesus, 
I have confidence that he will help you in your daily lives. How his help will come, we do not always know, and we can't obligate, but it is a constant. You can count on him. And sometimes in our faith in Jesus, it, because of circumstances, because of tragedy, because of peril, because of pain, because of suffering, our faith over here begins to wane. And I understand that. And that's why you need the support of a few friends, some loving brothers and sisters in Christ, people that care deeply about you, who stand with you, and together you come to the feet of Jesus. Because by yourself you can't get there. You're paralyzed. Jesus is good for the here. And the very issue that the man had suffered, we don't know how long, paralysis that, required, that brought him to immobility is released. And he walks out. And I want to offer you today that the Jesus of the Bible is good for the here. He is good. And if you put your faith in Jesus, it won't be perfect, but it will be better. Living the life of Jesus leads to a better life. It's not always easy, and at times it's confusing, but I just want to assure you, it will be better. But not only that, the Christian teaching is that it's good for the hereafter, too. Uh, he says to this person, your sins are forgiven. The things that would impede between that person and God, the things that cannot be allowed, gone. The Christian teaching, the Bible teaches, this is where we as Christians, we, we believe this. So I'm not just pushing it from me. I'm saying this is us. We believe that God placed on Jesus, as he was on the cross, the sins of the world. And the things that would be impediments between us and him are taken care of by him. And so when you come to God, and this is really important, when you come to God and say, God, I need to talk to you about something, something I said or something I did or something that occurred that I'm responsible for, and you tell him what you did or what you said or what you're responsible for, he says to you and says, he says, well, that's not good. You say, no, it's not. And he says, on the work of Jesus, I forgive you. And you're like, are you kidding me? Yeah. That's the Christian message. There is forgiveness of sins. And so today, as we finish this up, I want to just say on the here and the now, what do you need Jesus' help with? What through the power of the Holy Spirit? And I can't promise you that what you want will be the predictable outcome because he is the Lord, but he is not here to be benign from you, inattentive to you. He's with you. And what do you need at the end of your days? Who are you counting to pick you up at the end of the day? I go back to that early story. I just want to let you know for, for all of us in the room today, you don't have to be 85. You could be 15 because none of us knows really what time it is. Does anybody really know what time it is? I'm going to tell you it's 5 to 5. Do you think you should be making your way to the curb? Because somebody's going to be coming to pick you up at 5 o'clock. My faith says he's coming. Let's pray. Jesus, um, how rich it is to be with you. And yes, it is incredibly attractive. And uh, thank you for giving us the, the, the opportunity and the energy and the discipline to be here undistracted for an hour with you. We bless you. It's rich. And Lord, we adore you and we're satisfied with you. And I pray for just the big picture here. If there are people that have daily needs, situational needs, where only Jesus can be of ultimate intervention, I pray. If there be those that are paralyzed by guilt, by their situations, I pray release 
through the blood of Christ. And Lord, we look for that day when you will come back and pick us up. We'll be ready for you because we delight in your presence. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.